Dicey sees these patriots. They come on in. They ask for the rifle. She goes to get the rifle. And then she comes back out into their presence, I guess, into another part of the cabin. And um, then she realizes that she has not asked for the password. And uh, she asks for the password. And they say, oh, we've got you now. What password? She pulls out that rifle and points it straight at them. And she says, who has the rifle? Who has the advantage here? And the fact of the matter was that Dicey did. You were listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are excited and fortunate to have Reverend Dr. Paul Wood with us. He's a historian, author, and expert of Dicey Langston, a South Carolina heroine of the American Revolution. So welcome, Paul. Thank you, Eric. It's very nice to be with you. Paul, I am, I am really uh, excited about this particular episode because Dicey has gone down in folklore in South Carolina. And if you've done any amount of just a cursory research on women heroes in South Carolina, Dicey Langston certainly is in the top five. Uh, I, I can think of others like uh, Kate Berry and Martha Breton. But Dicey Langston is is right up there and interchangeable with, with those heroines. And I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Thank you, Eric. And I think that Dicey is the best known heroine of the American Revolution in South Carolina. Very good. I did not set out to prove that or put her within the top five, but I've come to think she's number one. Give our listeners a little bit of understanding of of where Dicey lived, how old she was. And then let's just start with the stories and your research and we'll just roll right through it. All right. We know that Dicey Langston was uh, born in 1766 in Lawrence County, South Carolina, in the northern part of the county, a few miles north of Clinton, between Clinton and the Ennery River. Sometimes they refer to Duncan's Creek, which is a very famous creek in Lawrence County. That, the historical setting, I had to determine myself. These stories come from a woman named Elizabeth Ellett. I need to say a good bit more about that remarkable woman. But for now, I'll say, Ellett tells us that Dicey was 15 years old when the American Revolution began. Well, I'm quite certain that these events took place in 1781. I can explain that. And I know the year that Dicey was born. And there was confusion over the year of her birth. In fact, when you go to Traveler's Rest, where she spent most of her adult life, there's a wonderful monument uh, erected by the Daughters of the American Revolution years ago, and the plaque on the monument states the wrong year of birth for Dicey. Later, they learned that she was born years, some years later than what they had, so there's a second plaque on that monument. So I was able to determine the year of her birth and I'm quite certain of the year that these exploits took place, and she turned 15 in the spring of that year. So I think it's fair to say she was a 15-year-old. So when the, when the actual um, war had jumped off, uh, whether it be some of those preliminary uh, things in 1775 or 1776, you're saying she was 9 or 10 years old. Uh, she, well, born in 1766 means she was 10 when the Declaration of Independence was signed. Right, right. So, uh, still a child for a while. Now, how do we know 1781? 
Ellett, Elizabeth Ellett, who tells the original versions of these stories, doesn't help us. But there are armed men involved in all seven stories. It's part of the American Revolution, but no soldiers in that story. And that says to me that the British provincials, who had been based out of the fort at 96, had retreated to the fort at 96 uh, by the time these things began. Uh, the provincials were around at the Battle of Musgrove Mill and other episodes like that, but there came a time when they all had to escape, so to speak, to the safety of the 96 fort. Then they had to evacuate that fort in July of uh, 1781. So I'm real sure that these exploits of hers took place from spring of 1781 to possibly the middle of 1782. And by the middle of 1782, to my knowledge, all conflict had come to an end in the upcountry, the backcountry, as they called it, of South Carolina. We're talking Lawrence County. That is really a big hub of activity between Whig and Tory. And uh, it was really a, a civil war in the backcountry around there. Yes, and there we go. It is the setting of that civil war where Dicey is helping the Patriots. That's the setting. It was no longer in the backcountry a real war for independence. Uh, the British were holed up in 96 and then they had to leave. So what was left was enormous bloody conflict between, I'm sorry to say, Patriots and Loyalists. Where was her father at the time? She's 15 years old. I mean, it's hard for us to kind of imagine how old he was, but where was he at the time? That's a very good question. When Elizabeth Ellett tells the stories, she's very clear that Dicey's father is aged and that he is disabled or incapacitated. And that ties in with all seven stories. He is not the protector of the family. Now, Dicey had younger brothers, but they were quite young. Dicey had older brothers, but they were involved in the war. We know for sure from pension applications that two of the brothers uh, fought as militiamen for the Patriot side. Now, back to Mr. Langston, that's Solomon Langston Sr. He was not old in 1781. He was about uh, 45 years old. More importantly, he lived. He lived until 1825. Think how many years that is before he passed away. Right. So what explains the weak role that he plays in the life of the family? What explains the fact that a 15-year-old woman becomes a protector of the family? Well, uh, Mr. Solomon Langston Sr., we know, fought at, in the Battle of Stono Ferry in 1779 under or with a Spartan regiment. So they were all down there in Charleston County, and that's quite, quite a ride. And also know that uh, Mr. Solomon Langston Sr. applied for compensation because he lost his wagon somewhere uh, or sometime during uh, all of that work, making their way to Charleston County, fighting the battle, and then making their way back up. So my best guess is that he was disabled and therefore unable to protect the family because of war injuries, but he was not aged. When we try to fill in the gaps of the historical record, we fail to mention just the everyday injuries or the everyday things that happen. Right? Yes. Yeah, he throws a, you know, people in that time were throwing shoulders out. People in them were blowing knees out. Yes. People, people were, were becoming incapacitated for any number of different situations that you and I would go to the doctor and have fixed 
you know, that day. Right. And uh, they did not have those medical facilities back then, so any number of things could have happened. What about Dicey's mom? Dicey's mother doesn't play any role in these stories. Now, we know from the genealogical research that she was still quite alive during these days. I don't know why. I cannot explain why she doesn't play a role in this. She might have been tending to very young children. But Dicey is a 15-year-old. Her older brothers are out fighting as patriot militiamen. She takes on the burden of being the protector of the family, the defender. How old are her brothers? I I don't remember quite what their ages are. Uh, They would have been, I think, in their early 20s. I see. So right there in the middle of uh, the age when all these young men were fighting for liberty, for the new country, and defending their homes and their livestock as best they could. So the closest neighbor, and describe the, the community where she well, grew up in. Yes, yes. It's hard for me to say. I've seen the land grants that were given out after 1790, but I don't know exactly who owned which property. But these are all land grants that uh, were made at that point in time by the King of England to new residents of the back country of South Carolina. What, what date was that? Well, in the lead-up to the Revolutionary War and relative independence from England, folks in the low country wanted as many people as possible to move into the back country. Now, why is that? They needed protection from Cherokee. Mm-hmm. Now, that set everyone in a very difficult situation. All the white folks, European background folks were in danger, and so were the Cherokee. The Cherokee did not live in most of backcountry South Carolina, but they hunted there. This had been their hunting grounds for years, maybe centuries. So here are these European Americans moving in to what was their hunting grounds. And that led to enormous violence um, in the years leading up to the American Revolution. Enormous violence at the beginning of the revolution, and then much, uh, some more violence as the Revolutionary War ended. And uh, as you might imagine, the whites won these battles. Many Cherokee lost their homes, many of them lost their lives, and eventually most retreated to the shelter of the North Carolina mountains and to East Tennessee. You jump ahead, and then you've got uh, Andrew Jackson and the Trail of Tears, but that was in the next century. But the land grants themselves, how, how large were these land grants? At, at least 100 acres. Okay. At least 100 acres, and you got more land if your wife was with you, and more land for each child, and interesting, interestingly, more land if you held enslaved persons in your possession. So how much land Mr. Langston owned at that time, I do not know. The land grants, and this research has been done by the good folks in Union County, the land grant maps show that Mr. Solomon Langston Sr. owned land right on the Ennery River, but this was after the 1790 arrangements began to unfold with grants coming from the South Carolina legislature. So I think it's important for our listeners to remember that uh, often when people think about the South and South Carolina, they think about the antebellum period where you have the big houses with the big columns and you have huge uh, pieces of land that are all put into crops of cotton and, and, and corn and that sort of thing. That's not what we're talking about here. That is not what we're talking about. I'm glad you brought that up. There were men in the low country who owned enormous plantations. 
they were growing rice and indigo and depending heavily on enslaved people to do that horrible work of clearing the land and then uh, then growing the crops and harvesting them. In the back country, it was a different story. Mainly, the people who were settling in the back country did not come into South Carolina from Charleston or Georgetown or Beaufort. They trickled down from Pennsylvania. They were Scots-Irish. And the Scots-Irish would come in from Scotland and Ireland from uh, into mainly Philadelphia, and the land was already becoming crowded uh, in the 1700s in eastern Pennsylvania. So they would move, and then the land became more crowded. So here are tens of thousands of uh, Scots-Irish people moving forward, and forward meant moving further into Pennsylvania, and they moved south to Virginia, to North Carolina, to South Carolina, and even Georgia. These were the Scots-Irish, and that's, that's a group of people that are Dicey's, Dicey's family. Now, they were not Presbyterians, I found. One would think that uh, the Langstons were Presbyterians, but uh, the family, the Langston family, uh, they are from England. And so they were Anglican? Uh, no. Okay. That, that's another good question. For one thing, there were no Anglican churches in the back country except in Shiraw and Camden. So no, uh, the Church of England, in other words, the Anglicans, they were not doing anything to provide uh, church life for uh, residents of the back country. It is mainly Presbyterians who settled the back country. But they were not Presbyterians. Um, I think that they were Baptists because, okay. because Mr. Langston, Solomon Langston Sr., donated land. He gave land to a fledgling congregation, and they named themselves after him. So they named themselves the Langston Baptist Church. I can't be sure of that, though. Isn't that interesting? So there are seven stories that coming out of, of this this time period in reference to this uh, young Langston. Let's let's just get right into the stories. All right, seven stories. You hear variations on these stories in poems, in songs, in drama, uh, in many different written accounts that have appeared since the middle of the nineteenth century. Children especially love these stories but they all boil down to the seven stories put into a remarkable book by Elizabeth Ellett. That book was published in 1848. It's entitled The Women of the American Revolution. Ellett was the first person to put into writing accounts of what, what great importance women had in the American Revolution up and down the eastern seaboard. So she includes Dicey. That's interesting you say that. Ellet was not even from South Carolina. No, that's interesting in itself. Uh, Ellet was a New Yorker. Now, how would she learn about this South Carolinian? Well, the answer is, it's in her chapter in that book. At the end of the chapter, she cites Benjamin Franklin Perry, B.F. Perry. B.F. Perry was well known in the state of South Carolina in the 1900s, I'm sorry, 1800s, Perry was a remarkable man in himself. He was an attorney, a journalist, and for most of his adult life, he served in the South Carolina legislature. So he, would, he served many years in the House. He served many terms in the Senate of South Carolina. So he was in Columbia. Well, how would Elizabeth Ellett meet anyone who was in Columbia, South Carolina? Well, the answer is that Elizabeth Ellett's husband was a geologist. And he was hired by South Carolina College to teach geology. 
South Carolina College, of course, is now the University of South Carolina. So I think that the two of them met in Columbia, and Elizabeth Ellett very plainly gives credit to B.F. Perry for passing these stories along to her, these seven stories. Yeah, this man was so uh, interesting and smart and powerful that he served as governor of the state of South Carolina for a time. It's Abraham Lincoln, oddly enough, who appointed him to be governor as uh, Union troops took over South Carolina, 1865-1866. So Perry was a very dependable source. Here's another reason. He was editor of the newspaper in Greenville when Dicey was in the latter stages of her life or the first few years after she died. The paper was the Greenville Mountaineer, and uh, he, he was the editor, and Dicey, beginning sometime in the 1790s, lived in Traveler's Rest with her husband, Thomas Springfield, and that's where she had so many children. Her, her obituary states that she had 23 children. Uh, for one thing, that gives her a lot of descendants. Oh, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans were very proud of this matriarch in their family. Uh, I, I doubt that all 23 survived infancy. I've looked at the genealogical records of these proud descendants, and I've seen the names of 15 or 16. The, the gentleman that she married, yes. that is actually part of one of these stories, is it not? It, that's a variation on one of these stories. Uh, the last of the seven stories, and by the way, each story stands on its own. One does not chronologically follow the other. One doesn't depend upon the other, but they're all in that same historical and geographical setting. In that story, Dicey's brother James, who was one of these Patriot militiamen, has left a rifle with her. He wanted her to hide the rifle away so he could access it at some future point in time. And he gave her a password. He said, don't let anybody have this rifle unless they give you the password. Well, it's, it's a funny story. Dicey sees these patriots, they come on in, they ask for the rifle, she goes to get the rifle, and then she comes back out into their presence, I guess into another part of the cabin. Then she realizes that she has not asked for the password. And uh, she asks for the password, and they say, oh, we've got you now, what password? She pulls out that rifle and points it straight at them. And she says, who has the rifle? Who has the advantage here? And the fact of the matter was that Dicey did. Well, they all laughed because they did have the password. They really had been sent there by her brother James. Now, there's a variation on that story that makes it even more humorous. The variation goes this way, that the leader of that small group of patriots who'd come to fetch the rifle was her future husband, Thomas Springfield. I'm not sure I believe that, but it's, it's icing on the cake for a wonderful story. It is a nice little story, isn't it? So tell me about another story. All right, here's the best known story. Okay. And the best-known story, it's easily pursued, it's detailed, it's riveting, in my opinion, and children especially love this story because it is this 15-year-old, at her best, saving the lives of other people. Dicey uh, is a spy out in the community. She's free to roam around. Her, her father is not free, as we've said. And Dicey gets wind of the fact that Tory militiamen are planning to ambush her brother and his compatriots with him where they are, and they're going to ambush them first thing the next morning. So Dicey waits till everyone has gone to sleep. Dicey leaves her bed, and she heads out. She travels up to the Ennery River, not the Tiger, as Elliot says. She crosses the Ennery River, 
and she finds her brother and these other men. She knew where they were. She knew how to get there. But think of that. Anyone, man or woman, young or old, crossing a river in the dark to get there. That's remarkable in itself. So she finds them. She warns them about this ambush that is planned for the next morning. Uh, the story is said that they were hungry. So uh, she baked them some hoe cakes. And uh, then they took the hoe cakes and they escaped. And she returned all the way home before dawn. In other words, she crossed the river a second time. That's quite a story. And I, I think everybody loves that story. But there's some things about it that don't seem quite right the way Elizabeth Ellett told us. She tells us that Dicey crossed the Tiger River. She never mentions the Ennery. The Tiger River is too far away. I know where the Langston Family Cemetery is. I know within maybe a half mile of where the house was. Uh, she just could not have crossed the Ennery, crossed the Tiger, found them, and then recrossed both rivers before dawn. It was very dangerous what she did in the first place but physically impossible to do what Ellet said. Um, so I just correct that story and say that it was the Ennery River that she crossed. We talk about danger crossing these rivers. We look at it from our 21st century viewpoint on society, on civilization and that sort of thing. They didn't have paved roads, but the roads that they have are most of the time just paths. Uh, and uh, when you talk about a river crossing, you're wanting a river crossing that uh, isn't going to sink your wagon down. Yes. Uh, and, and you've got to have firm footing as you get across. So there are, there are places in the river that is, that is better to cross than other places. It was dark. It was dangerous for a number of reasons. Yes, I totally agree with you. And speaking of crossing that river, uh, the wonderful uh, author and researcher John C. Jack Parker Jr., whom you have interviewed, help me with this portion of the research. When you look at maps from the early 19th century, you see a path or road that connects Lawrence, South Carolina with Ennery, South Carolina. The town of Ennery lies just across the Ennery River from, uh, from Lawrence County. So here's this road, uh, maybe just a footpath, and here's a crossing, and that crossing has a name today, as it had back then, Sandy Ford. So what Jack did was using uh, aerial maps, point out where Sandy Ford was. You see some white water, because the water is moving more rapidly over, over large boulders. And uh, that is where South Carolina 49 crosses the Henry River. It's a shallow part of the river where it's wider with boulders, and that was the obvious place, I think, for Dicey. Assuming the road was there in Dicey's time, which I think it was, maybe it's just a path, but it led to the Sandy Ford, and I think that's where she crossed. To your point, we don't even talk about the, the country being overrun with loyalists at that time. Either. Oh, yes. So, so she's trying to dodge through, through all of that. For our listeners, you wrote an article that's actually out there on, that they could go to, and it has some of these maps uh, that they could access. Where would they find that? All right. Thank you for asking that. The uh, Sester Centennial Commission, formed about three years ago, is doing a wonderful broad range of activities leading the state to, uh, to celebrate 
this. I'm not sure that any other state on the eastern seaboard is doing as much as the South Carolina Commission is to lead us through this. One of their projects is uh, publications. So they have recruited various people to write articles, to do research and write articles on women and on black folk who participated in the, uh, in the American Revolution. You'll find another article in addition to mine there, and that article pertains to Jane Black Thomas. And that article has been written by Sheila Engel, a wonderful writer as well, of people, uh, men and women of the American Revolution. So I suggest that folks go to the website SouthCarolina250.com. There's so much more there. We truly are a cornucopia of heroes here in South Carolina. Not, not your fictional heroes, not the Marvel, not the DC, not those heroes that save some fictional world. We're, we're talking about real-life heroes from South Carolina. Real life. And one of the objectives, if not the most important objective, of my article was to prove whether or not Dicey could have done these things. There's no contemporaneous written material about her performing uh, any of these deeds of heroism. Well, I've got to ask, did she do them? I feel certain that she did what is said in the first story and at least two more. Okay. And I'll tell you about those two that I'm most certain of. There's a story where Tory militiamen make their way into the Langston home, which was probably just a cabin. They make their way in. They know that Dicey has been uh, a spy of some sort out in the community. And they tell Mr. Langston, her father, to hush her up to make her stop. Well, a gun is pointed at him. Dicey pointed at, the dad. pointed at the dad, yes. Dicey steps in the way. In other words, if you're going to kill my father, you've got to kill me first. And I think that's quite believable that this young woman would do that. Another story is quite similar to it, but now it's out in the countryside. Dicey has been free to, to roam around the countryside. The Tories have gotten on to her. They fully suspect that she's aware of where these opponents are and uh, that she can help them. So a group of them approach Dicey. They stop her in the countryside and say, you've got to tell us what you know or you're going to be shot dead right here. Dicey removes a scarf from her upper chest and says to the men, shoot me right here. I'm not going to tell you. I love that story. Again, this, this heroine refusing to do anything to help the Tory side in the war. If that's true, it sounds like she had a fiery personality. <laughs> yes, and that is said of the Langston clan to follow ever since. My wife is a Langston. I see. She's a descendant of Dicey's father and therefore one of Dicey's brothers. And, uh, oh, there's feistiness that I have seen in the Langston family all through the years. <laughs> so, yet another story that you think is true. Um, or were those the two stories? This, this is where I'm not quite so sure. Okay. There's another one like those two that I just mentioned. Tory militiamen want to get into the Langston house. Okay. We can't be quite sure why. They possibly wanted to steal things from the Langstons, possibly wanted to get at Dicey and get information out of her or her father. Well, they're on the outside side of the door. They've announced their presence, and Dicey refuses to let them in. I'm not sure that Elizabeth Ellett says that Dicey is holding a gun, but these men are quite certain that whoever opens the door first is going to be shot dead by this 15-year-old. 
they have a parley, as Ellet calls it, and they decide, no, we're not going into the Langston house today. She also learns one day that Patriot militiamen plan to go to the homestead or farm or cabin of a neighbor, a man that doesn't live far away from the Langstons, and he is a Tory. What are they going to do? These Patriots are going to steal his horses. Well, Dicey and her father have respect for this neighbor. Even though he's a Tory, they think he's a fine person. So Dicey goes to his home and warns him that they're about to come and, and steal his horses. Well, somewhere along the way, Dicey learns that this man is not just ready to protect his horses. He has called in other Tory militiamen, and they're going to set an ambush for these Patriot militiamen. So whenever they show up to steal the horses, they're the ones who will suffer the consequences. So Dicey then speaks to the Patriots, and she said, you don't want to try to steal those horses because they're laying an ambush for you. So you see, Dicey has tried to help a Tory and tried to help Patriots. Is that true? I'm not quite certain of that. The, the plot is a little bit too complicated. I'm skeptical of that. But it sounds like a good story to teach moral lessons to young people. It certainly paints a picture of the Civil War in, in, the, in the back country of South Carolina during that time, does it not? That is a very good point. This is, this is Civil War. The Revolutionary War itself in the back country had ended. It was clear that the Patriots were going to win the war, at least in South Carolina. They had bottled up the British in several posts. But then the British had to leave 96. So that was the last of the upcountry, backcountry locations that they had to leave. And that was a well-defended fort, but they had to make their way to Charleston. So by the time of the surrender at uh, Yorktown, when Cornwallis turns an entire army over to George Washington and others, it's clear that this war is going to come to an end. And uh, they kept fighting. The Patriots and the Tories kept fighting one another. Now, why was that? Nobody's trying to win a war anymore. They're trying to get revenge. These are people who've suffered, suffered, and suffered because people on both sides have burned down the barns of the others. They've stolen the cattle and other livestock of the others. They have left people homeless. This was a tough time. And because both sides carried out these acts of terror, as we might call them, because both sides had, they wanted revenge on each other. I'm sorry to say, so here Americans who had been fighting for the independence of this new country to begin with, but now it has become a civil war. And many people refer to this part of the American Revolution in South Carolina as our nation's first civil war. Thousands of people died and suffered because of what was taking place in the back country of our state. So. Is that all seven stories, or is there another one in there? She, she has other Tory militiamen come into the home in another story. And uh, Elliot refers to uh, a well-known uh, Tory captain, at least well-known in the 19th century, Gray. Gray was the last name. And Gray is rummaging through the house, stealing what he can, and he comes across a pewter basin. And he says aloud, well, I can take this pewter basin as well. I can uh, melt down the pewter and turn it into bullets, which was quite possible. Dicey is there with a quick retort. 
she refers to an old story that comes out of Europe, which I feel certain uh, had made its way to the back country of South Carolina from the Scots-Irish. And that is that to kill a witch, one had to use a silver bullet. Now, we see that old, that's an old folktale. But Dicey brings it up, and she says, it takes a silver bullet to kill a witch. Certainly a pewter bullet can't do anything to harm those patriot militiamen. They're just too tough. So not only was she feisty, but she was quick-witted. Yes, that's a very good way to put it. That, that's quick funny. That is funny. So those are the stories. I think I've covered them all. And we see variations on those stories popping up in little dramas and poems and songs. And this is one reason that uh, scholars and other skeptics, and we do pay scholars to be skeptical of everything they come across, they doubt that any of this took place. They, they, the stories of Dicey sound too much like legend. They sound like family legend because they were passed along by family members. They weren't written down until, as I say, in 1848. Elizabeth Ellet wrote them down with help from Benjamin Perry. I know learned people who really doubt that any of these stories about Dicey are true. I think some of them are. Uh, you've got to salute all of these descendants of Dicey. They are proud of this heroic woman who was their great-great-great-great-grandmother, whatever. By the way, more than 129 women have been admitted to the Daughters of the American Revolution because they're direct descendants of Dicey Langston Springfield. Unlike most of the men, who uh, help modern-day descendants uh, claim heritage, there is no written indication, no proof that Dicey did any of this. Her obituary, I mean, years later it came out. Then 11 years after that, the Ellet book came out. That's not proof enough for the skeptic. And I know some skeptics who still don't believe these stories. But what I have concluded is that the descendants of Dicey, and everybody else for that matter who loves these stories, can be quite certain that Dicey carried out some of this. And that leads me to the people of Traveler's Rest. The people of Traveler's Rest have a stone monument that's been out there for many years. I've already mentioned that. We're talking about Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, uh, uh, above yes. Greenville, correct? Yes, correct. Okay. Uh, that's in northern Greenville County. And uh, sometime in the 1790s, she and her husband, Thomas Springfield, moved up there. They lived outside of Traveler's Rest for the rest of their lives. I've been to her grave. I've seen her grave. But the people of Traveler's Rest are moving ahead with a new way of honoring Dicey. Many of your listeners, I hope a lot, know of the Swamp Rabbit Trail. The Swamp Rabbit Trail is a notable rail to trail uh, that goes for miles and miles north to south in Greenville County, including through the town of Greenville. It makes its way to Malden and Simpsonville. Well, near the upper end of the trail is Traveler's Rest. What they will do is put a statue, a marvelous bronze statue of Dicey, right along the trail. It's a way of honoring this young woman. The uh, people of Traveler's Rest, led by their mayor, Brandy Amadon, if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, all they need now is some more money to have the statue actually crafted and erected. It will look very good, and what it does is depict the first story the story that I've been telling about that is so wonderful. At night, Dicey is making her way to a river, crosses a river, helps the Patriot men, recrosses a river, and makes her way back home before dawn. 
the statue shows Dicey running, running. I love that statue. I've already myself given quite a lot of money for its uh, construction, and uh, I hope that others will do the same. It's easy enough just to go online, but Google uh, Dicey Langston statue, and that will take you to uh, a, a place where you can make your contribution. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much, Eric.